This segment was recorded live on November 11th, 2009. ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We are live, we're here, and we have a great show for you today, seriously. If you want to participate, you can, on the phone, on the web, and on Twitter. Tweet us. As usual, we're covering all kinds of interesting topics today. And today we've got Dr. Lisa Sanders in the house, or more accurately, the house doctor on the air. She's the technical advisor for the hit television series, House MD and author of the new book, Every Patient Tells a Story. If you've got a question for Dr. Sanders, now is your chance to call in or email. Our number is 888-MD-1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. And our email, sol at reachmd.com. And don't call looking for Dr. House. He won't be here. So what else is on the agenda? How about this? What do you think about giving the HPV vaccine to boys and men? Is it worth the cost? Well, maybe not for you, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) And how many of you shrug off taking a family history as you work up a patient? Well, a new published report from an NIH conference says that family history disclosure may not improve clinical decision-making. And once again, there goes another part of my medical training out the window. (laughs) I know. We'll talk about it on this week's ReachMD Forum. And our number again is 888-MD1-REACH. Give us a call now. But first, our regular feature, ReachMD's That's News to Me, where we review curious news headlines from the world of medicine. Today, we're putting the kibosh on cancer with a dose of Indian food. New research published in the British Journal of Cancer reports a compound in curry powder that may kill cancer cells. The active ingredient? Curcumin, a component of the popular Indian spice turmeric, which gives curry its distinctive yellow color. Those are two hard words to, do, to talk about. And I think I pulled it off. Right I think you yeah. did. Well, ironically, this was discovered by Irish and Polish researchers. <laughs> now, why were right. these guys and gals testing Indian food ingredients? It seems that drinking is the national sport of Ireland, and these people get a lot of esophageal cancer, probably Poland too. Mm. Now, the origin is that researchers in Ireland were looking for new ways of killing resistant esophageal cancer cells. All right. Esophageal cancer, in case you didn't know, Matt, is the seventh most common cancer in Ireland, which accounts for 4% of all deaths there, cancer deaths. So it's uh, linked to obesity, alcohol intake, and reflux. Yeah, it seems like those are on the rise over there uh, in Ireland. So that would make sense that they would research it. But in the lab, it looks like the compound, also what's called curcumin, if I'm getting that right, it started killing cancer cells within 24 hours. But the interesting thing was that it was not by triggering cell apoptosis. It was a totally different mechanism. And in fact, the cells began to digest themselves. And so that leads to the question in my head, what exactly happens with normal cells? Are we digesting Indian food or is it digesting us? Well, in my case, it's not about killing the cancer cells. It's about killing me because I am highly allergic to curcumin. Oh. By the way, if there's any owners of Indian restaurants out there, call us with the correct pronunciation for these words. <laughs> oh, please. We need this. Yeah, but allergies aside, you know, any of us who go into an Indian restaurant and choose to not get the mild flavored stuff, probably going to be feeling like something's being digested and it's not cancer cells. Well, yes, absolutely, but (laughs) um, you you won't catch me eating it. Well, listen, there has been some research to date, and this this is a serious compound, Matt. It's been tested in numerous clinical trials uh, for several distinct purposes, and one is oral administration to inhibit development of intestinal adenomas. True. And... True. They've got a number of studies, it looks like. I mean, it seems like this is not exactly coming out of nowhere. They've been looking at this particular compound for 
it seems like a myriad of genetic and medical uh, conditions. Am I right? Well, inter- and interestingly enough, this brings up the idea of, of cures coming from nature. I mean, mm-hmm. going all the way back to William Withering and Foxglove and Digitalis, uh, I, I think we need to look at the things we eat and the things we do to to find things. And I think we will in the future find stuff like this. I find this fascinating. Even though I couldn't eat it, I would just have to take my <laughs> esophageal cancer and just you know die with it. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think that... There, this this is an open doorway to natural cures. Not that I'm propo- you know, a proponent of all natural cures. But yeah. You're not in the natural-suitical region necessarily. But, uh, uh, not not yeah. at all. And uh, I think it's fascinating, and I think everyone should go out now and eat Indian food and avoid <laughs> esophageal cancer. But we should probably mention what some of the other things that it's been listed in. It's got anti-inflammatory activity. It was found comparable to NSAIDs for rheumatoid, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, it was in um, a tra- trial for cystic fibrosis. It's being looked at for Alzheimer's development as a preventative agent. It seems like it's all over the map. I wonder what Italian food does for you. Or, that we shall find out. It's called the Mediterranean diet. Or right? cheeseburgers. <laughs> what do cheeseburgers protect against? I'd like to find <laughs> I'd out. Love if to find anybody that one doing out. research. Okay. Moving on. The HPV vaccine used for prevention of cervical cancer has recently been approved by the FDA for use in boys and men to prevent genital warts. But is the vaccine worth its cost? Well, the vaccine's been shown to be successful in reducing the incidence of genital warts, which are generally associated with certain cancers, but the cost may be high. This is the subject of this week's ReachMD poll, and that is, given the research that we're going to talk about, would you recommend the HPV vaccine for male patients? Don't forget to log on to reachmd.com slash poll later, after we discuss this, to go directly to the poll homepage. Cast your ballot and see what your peers think. So let's start with some of the scope of this disease, at least by uh, statistic measures. So genital warts is uh, known to be diagnosed in about 8,600 men annually. And it's associated with uh, several cancers, cancers of the anus, penis, rectum, mouth, and throat. Obviously, uh, you know, anus, penis, those are much less uh, common than cervical cancer. Uh, But the vaccine's rationale is essentially both to prevent uh, uh, genital warts development and um, precancerous lesions, um, especially, you know, looking at decreasing the spread of HPV to female partners, and which would, of course, further reduce the incidence of cervical cancer. Well, I'm going to step in here from my clinical experience as a dermatologist and say, okay. the number that you threw out, 8,600, I don't buy it. Don't I buy think it. it's much higher than that. And what I actually see in practice with genital warts are a number of young men coming in, and they, they have another diagnosis they want to talk about, like eczema. And when I'm done filling out the charge slip, as my hand's on the doorknob ready to leave the room, they go, oh, by the way, I have another question. And that's when the genital warts show up or something else. And I don't think that diagnosis, di- diagnosis makes it on all the charge slips. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of doctors don't write the diagnosis down because people don't want it as part of their medical record in case it gets looked at later on. So I think it's much, much more than that. Yeah. And, and actually, on a one-to-one basis, and I know we're going to talk about some numbers in a second, I think it's worth it. Because mm-hmm. if I had a young son uh, who was about to become sexually active, and I could protect him from genital warts, for $360, I would do it. Mm-hmm. Now, I think most of us would agree, or would go aside with you on that as well. I, the numbers definitely sound slim, 8,600 uh, men annually. I mean, I, I look at that, and I think that, that can't be right. And you're seeing it in dermatology practice uh, with a completely different light. So imagine what some of the other specialties are feeling. But we should look at a more global perspective as well, because there are researchers from Harvard who say it's really it's unlikely to be worth the cost. 
Now, whereas vaccinating girls against HPV makes good economic sense, um, even if they assume that 75% of 12-year-old girls, for instance, were to get vaccinated, they think the cost-effectiveness ratio is less than $50,000 per quality-adjusted year of life gained. But now compare that to males. Uh, I'd say, you know, it looks like in the best-case scenario, vaccinating both sexes leads to a ratio above $100,000. And if you were to assume a lower vaccine efficacy, the ratio goes up to about $300,000. So basically, long story short, penile and anal cancer is much less common than cervical cancer. Is it worth unrolling this uh, and distributing this vaccine? Well, here's a pre-segue. That's why I'm so glad we're talking to Lisa Sanders, because in her book, she talks about the human side of medicine. And the human side of this issue here is not the 100,000 or 300,000. To me, it's the misery that anybody goes through when they've got genital warts, and they're tagged with that for the rest of their life. So if we can avoid it, as I said, for $360 a person, if you can afford it, I'm, I'm for that. Absolutely. I can't argue with that. Okay, now we want you to vote. Uh, do you think it's, well, first of all, you think it's best to wait for more data? I don't know. But we want to know what's your reaction. Share your thoughts with us at reachmd.com slash poll, where you can vote on the ReachMD poll, and Matt and I get paid a lot of money for each vote. So go there and vote now. That's how they know if people are listening. We get paid in hamburgers and Indian food. That's right. And now we'd like to welcome our guest for the week. She started her professional medical career as a journalist for CBS News covering health and medicine and liked it so much that she went to medical school. Now, Lisa Sanders is an assistant clinical professor at the Yale School of Medicine. Yale's better than Harvard, but that's where that research came from. She continues her journalistic ways by writing her popular diagnosis column in the New York Times Magazine, and that column was the inspiration for the TV show House MD. And she currently serves as, as technical advisor for the show. So clearly, she knows the Hollywood scene pretty well. But her first love is still teaching about clinical reasoning and diagnostic errors. And in fact, her new book, called Every Patient Tells a Story, Medical Mysteries and the Art of Diagnosis, is all about embracing that art of becoming and being medical detectives. Lisa, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you. You suddenly became much quieter. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can I hear you in the booth? You're, you're here. You're with us. Just speak up. Okay, I'll speak up. All right, or maybe Dr. House will diagnose your voice problem. <laughs> All right, well, listen. Not without my help. Yeah, we, we both, Matt, Matt and I both went through your book, and uh, the, uh, the first question that I have is, who'd you write the book for? Is this for the general public, or is this for the physician audience? Oh, I think it's, well, it's for anybody who uh, is interested in this. It, it's not written for doctors. Um, I wrote it for the audience that at least exists in my mind that reads my column, and that means... Uh, people who are not doctors but are interested in medicine and interested in mystery. Um, and, you know, doctors read it too. I get a lot of emails from doctors. So it's written for both, but uh, it's not a technical book. I, I try to make it as clear as possible, but I think even doctors like that. Okay, well, the second even more important question is that I've had my 15 minutes of fame. I dance with Kevin Bacon in the movie, but how do we get Matt on the show to play a syphilitic doctor who's coked out, who dies a miserable death, despite Dr. House's diagnosis? <laughs> do I have to be coked out? Can I just be syphilitic? <laughs> no. no. All right. <laughs> you need it both. Plus, you have to have some tabies. Absolutely. It's not really, it's not really a, a, a house problem unless you, you know, unless you have some great manifestations of syphilis. <laughs> well put. Well, why don't we put, put it to you this way? Why was it important for you to provide this perspective to the general public, as well as to doctors? Because obviously a lot of us are, are reading in on it as well. You know, when I went to medical school, I thought I understood medicine because I'd been covering it for seven, eight years. And so I thought I really understood what, what it was all about. 
And I felt I had that continued delusion until I actually got to my third year and was allowed to actually see patients in the hospital. And I saw that where the real excitement was, the real juice, the real, you know, pleasure of medicine is in this tiny detective story that's at the heart of every doctor-patient uh, encounter. Um, I didn't think people knew about that. I, you know, um, I started writing my column to share that. House has done uh, a very big part of sharing that observation, but I think that uh, people don't understand what happens. I mean, even doctors don't understand what happens, and I think that patients are surprised often um, that it doesn't happen the way it happens in the movies. Here's how it happens in the movies. You know, you come in with these terrible and dramatic symptoms, because it's a movie after all, and, um, you know, doc the doctor comes in and says, I'm sorry, you have leukemia, and then you move on to the dramatic recovery. That moment, that statement is really just the, the iceberg, you know, the tip of the iceberg of this very interesting process, and I just think that people didn't know about it. I didn't know about it. You know, in, 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 in the news business, which I used to be in before the medicine business, you know, there's a joke uh, or a, a, an idea. Is it news to me or is it actually news? And I use that same sort of thermometer, only I wonder, is it interesting or is it just interesting to me? And I write my column with the assumption and this book that if it's interesting to me, it's interesting. No, I thought it was interesting. I thought the stories were very, very good. And, um, but I think it's more than the stories. All right? it, it, your book seems to be taking us back to the real fundamentals of listening, physical examination, and really just being with our patients. But I have a question. At the same time, our environment really limits the time that we spend with patients. So our, our listeners are in practice. How can our listeners go back and hone those basic skills and also pay the rent? Can we actually do that? Well, I think that there are plenty of studies that show that you can have a patient-centered interview that does not make your, uh, make your uh, visit longer. In fact, overall, it will probably uh, mean that you spend less time with that patient overall because they won't have to come back time and time again um, because you've diagnosed them incorrectly. Um, if you look at studies that look at diagnostic error, um, one of the key factors of this is uh, one of the key leading factors uh, behind diagnostic error is insufficient data gathering. We all know this, um, and so we just have to give ourselves permission uh, to do that. Now, it's, it's true that in private practice, everything conspires against this, um, and I'm not sure what the answer to that is short of changing the system, and nobody wants to hear that because that means nothing's ever going to happen. And yet I think doctors have to make room for this. Not every patient needs 20 minutes. I mean, most of the time patients come to your office with things that really are not hard to deal with. You know, people with hypertension come in for a blood pressure check. People with diabetes come in to just uh, check in and see how their sugars are doing. Um, this is the bread and butter of our practices. But when somebody comes in with a new complaint, they should get more time. Well, I understand that. And, I, and you speak a lot in the book. You use the word story a lot. Uh, and I think this is a wonderful word. How, when you first approach a patient, let me ask you, what, what do you say when you first walk in the room and sit down besides, hi, I'm Dr. Sanders and welcome or whatever? What's, what's the question you ask them? I ask them what everybody asks them. What brings you in today? 
Okay. But then I don't say anything after that. I try to give them a chance to actually tell their story. You know, when patients come into our offices, I think we all know this, um, they have a story that they've already told a half a dozen people, their husband or wife, their friends, their children, their colleagues at work. They've rehearsed this story. They have it down. And uh, when people have actually recorded how long it takes for a patient to, to tell their story, you know, it, it runs about uh, just under two minutes. You know, there are outliers. We've all seen those patients who just talk on and on and on, but they're few. So, but the average time that a doctor lets a patient speak, and we all know this too, is 20 seconds. Uh, if you could just hold your tongue for another you know, minute or so, you'd probably get the whole answer. Okay, interesting. I thought I thought you would answer that question by saying what I say to patients. I say, tell me your story. I don't ask them what brought them here today or how I can help them. And that starts them right on the story. Oh, that's great. I love that. Um, I have a colleague who says, uh, tell, me, uh, tell me about your problems from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. Also indicating that we want to hear the whole story, not the uh, just the facts, ma'am version. Well, that's interesting. I mean, uh, and at the risk of interrupting, I mean, I should say that Michael is one of those people that does talk ad nauseum, so it's difficult to take his point of view on <laughs> how much is an am- appropriate amount of time. Thank you. But why do you think uh, we do, I don't know if this has directly been addressed, but why do we have that uh, compulsion to interrupt? Is it because we feel like we've heard the story before? Is it because we feel like there is no new manifestation, nothing new uh, under the sun that we haven't seen before when it comes to certain presentations? Or are we scared the patient will go on forever? Well, I think it's both of those things, and I think there's something else. I think it's uh, a natural human response. I think we're uncomfortable with uncertainty. And so that it's not that we feel uncomfortable being quiet, although if we were quiet, we would feel uncomfortable. Um, it's that uh, we jump to conclusions. You know, we have premature closure. A friend of mine just went to, the hosp- went to her doctor with two days of persistent uh, chest pain that got worse when she lay down and felt better when she sat up. And on her EKG, she's in her early 40s, and she hasn't had an EKG in, you know, 10 years since she had uh, her children or a surgery, Um, and they saw an EKG change. So, of course, the doctor appropriately sent her to the ER. What happened in the ER was completely, (laughs) probably inappropriate, Uh, erring on the side of safety, but nobody talked to her when she got into the hospital, when she got into the emergency room, the story was woman with chest pain and uh, uh, EKG changes. So she went straight to the cath lab, you know, of course, because if, you, if that's the only story you know, well, then, you know, probably you're going to think that that's the right thing to do. But a brief conversation with the patient, she would have told you that it was two days of constant pain that was positional. Um, you might have asked other questions. So by not getting the patient's story, we're really cheating ourselves. And we're setting ourselves up for trouble, too, of missing, missing diagnoses. Well, you're, you're trying to make changes in the medical school by sensitizing medical students. Um, do you think that that's enough, or should we be changing who we are out in practice and paying attention to this more and being more present? Um, I think that medical students... Well, that's an interesting question. You know, medical students want to be good doctors. That's why they put up with two years of sitting in classrooms and two years of patients and two or three or four or five or six years of training afterwards. They want to be good doctors. Um, I think that 
we have to change we have to change who we are really we have to remind ourselves um, that these fundamentals are really important you know we've we're just on the down we're on the end of a long infatuation with technology we really believed i think that technology was going to improve so much that the tests would tell us the answer. Of course, tests never tell you answers. Tests are just yes or no questions um, that can help you build an answer but won't ever answer the question. And I think it's taken us a while to come off of that infatuation and realize that these tests, they're just, they're just clues. They're just hints. They could be good clues. You know, it could be a fingerprint on the gun. That's a good clue. Well, I, always, I also always don't trust tests. When I was a pediatric resident, I did a spinal tap on a baby that looked sick. And when I got the results, I said, gee, it's normal, a little bit traumatic. I didn't think it was. And when I went down to look at the lab, they had switched the white and red blood cell numbers, and it was a positive tap. I just did not trust that test. It's, it's actually, I, I like what you say about looking at the patient and just knowing when they're sick. And she also has a great way of putting it in your book, uh, Lisa, if I may. You say, the tests don't make a diagnosis, thinking does. And I thought that was a really nice way of encapsulating some of what we're talking about here. Right, but yes, exactly. And you can't think about what you don't know. Um, you know, there, there are people like uh, Jerome Glutman, his wonderful book, How Doctors Think, is all about uh, how, what happens in the doctor's brain. But actually, I think the real lesion happens well before the doctor sits down to cogitate about what's going on with his patient. I think it happens right at the beginning when we don't take a good history, when we don't do a good physical exam. You know, you, if you don't know something, uh, you can't think about it. You know, when I am writing my column or when I was writing this book, when I couldn't think of what to say, you know, I, I don't think I have writer's block because I'm not really a writer. I'm just a doctor who writes. Um, and so I found that if I read something... <laughs> or talked, uh, did another interview, then I would know what I wanted to say. But not being able to say something was really that I'd run out of information um, or didn't have the kind of information that should go next. And I think that um, we don't have the luxury of, uh, of uh, you know, putting down our computers and coming back to think about it again. We have to get the information right up front. And when we find ourselves at a loss, what do we do? We shoot the patient in the face with a diagnostic shotgun rather than doing what would make more sense often, which is going back over the story. Absolutely. I have a question for you. The, the, the book, which, although it's a lot of fascinating stories, and, and I love them all, it's really about, at least to me, about the heart of the doctor-patient relationship, this concept of presence and being there. Can, can you make a comment about how you feel this might be changed with the proposed health care reform legislation? I mean, I haven't heard anything about this in the legislation. It's all about money. Well, you know, our whole conversation about health care is dominated by money. Um, and I think it's going to make it hard. Uh, I think it's going to make it hard initially because, of course, there are not nearly enough doctors to take care of this new slew of patients. Um, there's some uh, movement to try and increase the number uh, of overall residents and force more of them to go into internal medicine. But you know what? I think we should just, for the next few years, make everybody go into to a primary care residency. You know, um, that's the only way we're going to fill this gap. 
I don't know. We still need dermatologists. I'm pretty busy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's nothing wrong with dermatology, but I would say that probably uh, when we think about the public funding that goes to pay for residency programs, we need to train the kind of doctors that we need. And while I think I'm I'm personally extremely grateful for my dermatologist, um, who keeps me from looking as old as I should, um, I, I think that the demand is going to increase dramatically. Look at Massachusetts. Uh, you know, they put in uh, into place something similar to this, not as good as this bill, or at least the House bill that's before um, uh, the House of Representatives voted on. I'm going to have to cut you off here, Lisa, because we are a live show and because of time. I'm sorry to do that. It was great to have you with us today. And uh, the book is Every Patient Tells a Story. I hope all of our listeners will go out and read it. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for Thank joining you. us. All right. Bye-bye. Well, well, Michael, I think you better start uh, uh, getting ready for primary care again because you're, you're going to have to well, I think come we, on back. Well, I think she makes a point. And, and it, I am primary care. I'm primary care of the skin. And half the things that, that we specialists listen to are primary care if we're really listening to patients' fears and, and being present to patients. You can be a gastroenterologist and, and really help your patient. It isn't about specialty. It's what she talks about, letting them tell their story and listening and then directing them in the right way. I agree. Uh, I think it's Makes a wonderful... sorry that we had to limit our time and cut her off. I, I know. <laughs> well, maybe we can have her on another show and we can keep talking. But it is a wonderful book, Every Patient Tells a Story, by Lisa Sanders. Okay, so to the ReachMD Forum, Matt. This week we're asking inquiring minds the following question. What role does the patient's family history play in assessing individual disease risk? Well, we all learned in medical school that family history is an important component of patient workups, but there is a new study that's published in the Annals of Internal Medicine which says that routine family histories in primary care may not improve clinical decision-making. It's based on an NIH panel review of all literature uh, between 1995 and 2009, which concerned roles of family history. And the panel concluded that evidence was, as they put it, insufficient that family histories improve clinical decision-making. Okay, let's get Lisa back on the line, because I think she'd agree with me on this, that I think the family history is really important. Maybe it isn't important to get every little detail, but I know in my own practice, it's just more time for me to spend with the patient listening to things, and, and they give you little clues in the family history. And it also helps me help them, because when I have a family uh, a patient has a family history of melanoma, for instance, a strong family history, I, I pay more attention to my exam. I have more time to talk to them about cancer and the risks of it and, and sun exposure. I think it's extremely valuable, and, and, and I, I would, I, you need to keep it in. Do you literally ask them, help me to help you? In, in a way. Multiple times? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, think, I think the doctor-patient relationship and that interview is really sacred time. And it, 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 sometimes it doesn't matter what question you ask them. Patients will want to get their story out, even as part of the family history. And if we cut this part out of the exam, I think we're missing something tre- tremendous. I, I mean, I tell you, Michael, I have to agree with you. And honestly, what is the cost to acquiring that information? <laughs> is it another couple of minutes? All that does is open the window, as you say, to getting a better history. But we should still put out some of the, 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 the issues that have been put out in this paper. I mean, it's unclear... Uh, from from the perspective of all these studies that they accumulated, whether taking a family history improves risk prediction or management of chronic disease. And one of the things that was interesting is that the study indicated that patients were more accurate reporting absence of a disease than reporting its presence in families. But even if that's the case, I mean, make that distinction, it's still 
gives you a chance to learn more about your patient. I have to agree. Absolutely. This is a case where it's like, <laughs> throw the studies out the window and let's not waste time doing these studies. Let's spend more money on direct patient care <laughs> instead of wasting this money. Seriously. I mean, I'd like to hear from our listeners and, and what do they think? Do they, are we going to throw family histories out the window? The more time you spend with a patient, the more you really listen to them, the more stuff squeaks out sideways from, from where you don't expect, little things, that, little comments that, that, that come out there. And that's so important to hear them, both to help the patient and to help you. Sometimes that clue will come out, like, like I talked about the, the wart patient, that doesn't tell you to your hands on the door. And if you walk out that door and don't hear them, oh, by they, the way. Won't, they won't, by the way, they, oh, I'm busy, come back another time. That's it. You'll never hear that complaint again. They'll be so embarrassed. They were embarrassed to get there in the first place. Yeah. It's what Lisa says is our job to be there, listening to patients' stories, and, don't, and everything's part of their story. Well, maybe the part of the problem here is that they have no standard method of evaluating and recording family history in all these studies. So there's really no way to, I mean, they're going to look at it and say, well, there's insufficient evidence to say that it works. But you could also flip it around and say there's nothing there to prove that it doesn't work. That's right. It doesn't cost any more to take a family history. And you can also upcode your charges and charge more. <laughs> Let's talk the practical here. To our, that's what our listeners want to hear. It's all about the money. That's right. <laughs> and I think that is going to wrap it up for us here on Second Opinion Live. we got to run because Michael's got reservations at an Indian restaurant tonight. Yeah, yeah I'm going to die there. <laughs> all right. We all die a little bit. Reminding you all to eat your curry, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm reminding you not to eat your curry because you might be allergic to it. For more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, visit our website at reachmd.com slash SOL. Feel free to give us a shout on Twitter, online, on Facebook, and go on Twitter and get the HouseMD show and ask for Matt to be on that show. And you can also follow us on your iPhone. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thank you for joining us. Keep your radio dialed to ReachMD at XM160, and thank you for joining us. See you next time.